Welcome to Complete Curiosity, the podcast that addresses the big questions in little segments. Hello, and uh, welcome to Mindful or Mindless. Do we need uh, an empty or a full mind? That's the topic this afternoon. Just want to uh, remind you that uh, we have a number of webinars, and we've been doing these for quite some time now uh, on our website, complete-coherence.com. Please go and take a look at those. They're either webinar form or um, podcast form, uh, and do share those amongst people that you know. It's a big topic this week, and there are libraries, whole libraries devoted to the mind and the stuff that we need to know to be able to kind of navigate our mind a little bit better. So as ever, Alan is, is here. And uh, hi, Alan. Hi, Katie. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So mindfulness, I, I'm mindful that, that this is a very, very big topic. And I'm mindful that we have probably around 30 minutes. I'm also mindful that all of you out there at any time, please just drop us, put in a question on the Q&A or in the chat function, please do join in, because I think this is going to be a bit more of an interactive session. So I'd like to know what's helpful for you, what's useful for you, uh, and where you're coming from. So, Alan, my first sort of question, mindfulness or mindlessness, and I know I'm going to regret asking this question, but what's your take on this? Because it will be different to anybody else's. Yes, as you say, absolutely massive topic, and really something that is one of the most fascinating things I think about it and reflect a lot on this because it's absolutely central to all of our experiences. And I think the start point is really to get some basic understanding of how the human mind actually functions. So for me, going to the concept of, you know, what is mindfulness, we have to backtrack a little bit. Well, what is mind? You know, before we just debate mindfulness, you know, the process, or the content, you know, our minds can be full of the idea of a raisin and the idea of ourself. But, you know, if we wind back a little bit and go, well, what is mind? And, and so that's where I start when I sort of think about these things. And I'm going to try and just share a few thoughts. And I really welcome people stopping and interrupting me, else I'm just waffling on about the stuff that interests me. Uh, and I'd rather talk about the stuff that interests people listening. But, you know, it, it starts with understanding the nature of the mind. And at the core, it's really about human consciousness. So, but what is consciousness? You know, and that's something that's been debated in neuroscience circles and philosophical circles, you know, for a millennia. And of course, nobody can really agree. So for me, some of the most interesting things about human consciousness is the emergence of human consciousness. So I was speaking at a conference some years ago on human consciousness and I think the best model of human consciousness, which then leads us into a conversation about the mind, is something called the penrose Hameroff model, which is Sir Roger Penrose, the professor at Oxford, a brilliant mathematician, and Stuart, Professor Stuart Hameroff, who's an anesthesiologist in Arizona State University. And Stuart is very interesting because, you know, he puts people to sleep. So their minds seem to go somewhere. <laughs> they're, they're kind of chatting away, chatting away, and you give them the anesthetic and boom, they've gone. And then there's all that data about people who seem to float above the operating table and watch themselves being operated on. So what's going on there? Uh, so he was like really, really fascinated. And he got talking to Roger. And Roger's a mathematician. And uh, I remember talking some years ago at this conference. And we started debate to debate, like, how many neurons do you need for consciousness? And again, there's a range of views, right? 
So some of the animists there believe that everything is conscious, even a rock. But I think the sort of weight of opinion in sort of scientific circles is there's a critical mass of neurons that you need to be aware. Mind what is that? What, do you know 20, what 000. that critical mass is? 20,000 is the view. 20, you need 20,000 neurons to be aware. I mean, genuinely aware. Now, earthworms have less than that, and they can move in the direction of something. But mindfulness really is underpinned by awareness and how many neurons you need to be aware. And what awareness really is, or consciousness, is the ability to fix a piece of content, fix a piece of content in your consciousness at a moment in time. So I'm aware of something, whether it's light or dark or food, no food. So I'm aware of it, right? It's in my consciousness. So, and consciousness basically is a, is a, it's a trick of evolution where we've evolved consciousness and it's sustained over time because it confers survival advantage. Mm-hmm. So if we can hold a map in our mind of something, we survive better. And so, you know, in the evolution of living species, they were able to map something. They were able to map what their environment, essentially, um, and hold that in their mind. So an earthworm, you know, or maybe just above the level of an earthworm, going through would know where the bird is pecking, you know, would know to avoid that, and they would survive. So if they can hold it in their consciousness, and again, in human uh, functioning, our consciousness exists in packets of time of about a quarter of a second. So we are aware as a human being for about a quarter of a second. This is called a qualia. A quarter of a second, you know, we're aware of something, ah, and then that collapses. And then we're aware of something, and then that collapses. So we have four frames a second. So our consciousness is discontinuous. We, we think we're live streaming. We're not. We're not live streaming reality. We bite reality. So we bite a piece of reality one quarter second big, and we have four of these a second, and they're going past the reader at such a space, the speed that we think our life is continuous, but it's not. Our life is discontinuous in these packages of time. So is it like when you flick a book? You know, you flick a book and you yeah. get a, a moving... Like a picture image. book, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or you know, it's, it's, it's very akin to a movie. When you watch a, a film, it's 125 frames a second in normal speed. So our human consciousness operates in the same way, except we operate four frames a second. And they're going quick enough that we think our life is continuous and our mind fills in the gaps. So we think it's continuous, but it's not. It's discontinuous. We have a moment of conscious awareness that we are mindful of. So we have our mind is full for a moment. That then collapses. And then our mind's full for a moment. And then it collapses. Then our mind is full for a moment. Then that collapses. And, and so what there's determines some... that pattern then? What determines whether, because I know people where uh, mine, my mind is not full every, you know, even, even twice every uh, second, you know? Well, whether you think your mind is full or not is really, you know, wh- how aware are you of the content of that moment in time? So if you think about, if anybody's ever used any video editing software, you have a picture, you know, like mm-hmm. a single still frame, and then you have a soundtrack and you have all sorts of other tracks. So it's that, that, what's the picture? Now, your mind is full of that picture, but whether you experience being full, your mind being full to the point of overloading, is the level of awareness of what's in that picture. And not only what's in that picture, what's on the soundtrack, what's on the emotional track, what's on the identity track. So it's quite a complicated thing being mindful, but when it's taught in the West, this whole sort of bandwagon of mind, oh, we've got to learn to be mindfulness. And to, what most people who teach that, you know, it's sort of been degraded 
to simple awareness, right? So Muck when they mindfulness, it's called. Muck mindfulness, exactly. You know, so hold a raisin in your hand or put a raisin in your mouth. Now, can you become very aware of the raisin? So awareness itself is, is you know, what's the difference between awareness, attention, and focus, for example? They're three different functions. So I can be generally aware of something. And then within the frame, I can start to attend to a bit of the picture or I can zoom right in and focus on something. So the awareness, kind of a general sense of the whole thing, that would be the awareness, right? The attention is to attend to a specific, so a sort of slight zoom in and a real focus, a real zoom in. So there are three different things within the bandwagon of mindful. So that's why it's tricky because, you know, we're confusing many, many things. So I actually think mindfulness is a, is a word worn smooth by a million tongues. I, people talk about it a lot, a bit like meditation. People talk about it a lot, but they mean so many different things. It's almost become an irrelevant concept. So I think it's so more what, what useful to more, focus. I was going to say, what is more, what is more useful then? This, this well, definition between awareness and, and focus. Well, you know, are we talking about awareness? Are we talking about attention? Are we talking about focus? Are we talking about concentration? So if we can, you know, be more specific, then we can start to get a handle on these things. When you use general terms, a bit like leadership. Well, leadership means so many things to so many people. It's almost an irrelevant word. You know, so you've got to zoom in on well, what specifically do you mean? Same like stress. Oh, I'm stressed. Well, what exactly do you mean? Do you mean you're frustrated? Do you mean you feel overwhelmed? You know, disenfranchised? I mean, what specifically are you talking about? And, and so we've got to get away from this sort of vague kind of platitudes and labels that mean very little and, and, and try and get, get some much more precision, some forensic precision in what we're talking about, else we can't really even exchange views. So you talk about awareness, attention, focus and concentration. And, and you sort of said, well, maybe meditation isn't, isn't, isn't the best of things. But so much no. research has been, has been done on No, I'm not saying meditation. meditation isn't the best of things. I'm saying the label is misused. So many years ago, I had the great pleasure to do some work with the Dalai Lama's team on, you know, what happens when, you know, Tibetan monks meditate. And I was talking to a, a, a Dalai Lama's right-hand man, as a, a wonderful human being called Matthew Ricard, some people may know. He's written a lot of books, uh, French by birth, and a brilliant photographer, and, a, and converted to Tibetan Buddhism. And he was sharing with me that, you know, his view is that, you know, meditation is really a mislabeling of the phenomena. And I said, well, well, what would you have called it then? He said, it should really be called familiarization. Because meditation what you're doing or what certainly what the Tibetans are doing when they're meditating is they're not doing what people in the West have been taught, which is close your eyes, you know, slow the breathing, relax and fall asleep most of the time or, or just relax, you know, so it's, it's sort of degraded into a relaxation technique and that's not what meditation is to Tibetans and they're the world champions at it. And so what you, you'll see if, if you ever like any of that Buddhist iconography, you know, in your garden, your little Buddha statue, you know, with the hands and all that, you'll see there's a little, bit of eyeball underneath the eyelids so you're not meant to close your eyes you're meant to close your eyes to 80 percent right your eyes are slightly open because what you're doing is you're actually concentrating you're familiarizing yourself with a specific emotional state so if you learn to do the meditation of loving kindness for example what you're doing is you're doing a technical exploration of 
the phenomena of loving kindness or if you do compassion meditation what you're doing is you're technically exploring like you take a book out of the library and study you're studying compassion as an experience not as an intellectual concept but what does compassion feel like when i'm experiencing compassion so meditation probably a better label for it would be familiarization uh, and that's what Matthew was t saying to me. So these words of, you know, meditation and mindfulness have become sort of degraded bandwagons in my view. And it's much more helpful to human beings in their day-to-day -day lives to say, well, look, I'm going to practice how to concentrate. And that's a really, really useful skill. Most people, you know, particularly those with attention deficit can't concentrate. Most adult human beings can't concentrate for more than a few seconds. But I can tell you that and they've done neuroscience research on this, that some of these Tibetans can hold their fix of their concentration on a dot on the wall for four hours, four hours without breaking concentration. And you can see in the EEG readout that they're still concentrating. So when you really hone the skills and the magic of the mind is it can do all these amazing things. You can become aware of things. You can tend things. You can focus on things. You know, you can familiarize yourself. You can sharpen all these different functions of the mind. And that's what we've got to get into is with forensic precision, the functions of the mind and start to train those memory, uh, recall, all those sorts of things. So we should be talking about the phenomena, not these big general labels. So obviously there's a number, there's a number of phenomena there. You know, what, what do you suggest given, given where we are as a, uh, you know, in the West particularly, what, what do we need? There's a lot of huge levels of anxiety and, and, and emotional uh, well-being issues where instead of kind of mock mindfulness what what should we what would be a better use of time effort concentration and focus yeah so again going to some of the basic functions let me see if i can share a slide here which is start by you know what are the sort of five basic functions of the mind right so i don't know whether you can see this so these yeah. are the five basic functions of the mind so this is where most people operate most of the time. I'm awake, right? For some people though, isn't it? Clearly. And certainly in the work we do, Katie, as you know, we talk about waking people up. But I'll come to that. That's a slightly different phenomena. But wakefulness, right? I'm actually awake or am I asleep? And when I'm asleep, I'm either in dreaming sleep, you know, rapid eye movement, dreaming, or I'm in dreamless sleep. And when you go into dreamless sleep, basically it goes black. So when you're dreaming, a lot of people when they're dreaming are sort of slightly aware that they're dreaming, you know, so that's that. And then when you drop into dreamless sleep, it all goes black and your consciousness disappears, a bit like Stuart when he sees the patient disappear somewhere. They're unconscious, right? So that's dreamless sleep. But it's not like your brain activity goes to zero. There's still brain activity going on. So that's different states of mind, if you will. And then there's this state called witnessing which is the ability to observe a phenomena. And that's a different state, a much sharper state than general wakefulness. And then there's a state of mind called non-dual mind. And I'll come back to that. So these are the big five, as we call them, the big five basic functions of mind. And so most people are in this state most of the time. I'm awake. And, you know, my mind is full of something, you know, the mortgage, COVID, the future, whatever it is, Right. And so when we're mindful, what are we mindful of, of exactly? You know, we can be mindful of ourself, which is obviously self-consciousness, or we can be mindful of a raisin, you know, in terms of how we've been trained. So if we take the self as an example, 
right? We can, there are 10 levels of self-awareness that you can cultivate. So I just want to run through these because they're relevant to the whole phenomena of mindfulness and our own evolution and sophistication. So when we were about one year old, we became aware of ourselves as a physical entity. Prior to that, we're just pooing and crying, right? So we exist, but we don't know we exist. Uh, and the reason self-awareness, you know, mindful of self is so important is because it's one of the main things that distinguishes us from most of the animals, not all the animals, most of them, because some animals are self-aware. But about one year old on the human journey, we become aware of our physical self. There's a beautiful moment if you see this, a child looks in the mirror and starts to raise their hand. <laughs> That's me. That's me. Oh my goodness. And that goes up. That hand's going that you know, and they think, oh, that's weird. And then they do this lovely experiment. If you see a one-year-old do it, they put their foot in their mouth and they bite their foot, <laughs> right? Because they're, they're thinking, oh, I can feel that. I can feel my gums and I can feel my toes that I'm biting. Um, and they bite the table. Mm, that's weird. I can feel my gums, but I can't feel the table. So it occurs to them on a vague level. I'm the thing that hurts when you bite it, right? So when I bite my foot, that hurts in my foot. But when I bite the table, my gums hurt, but the table doesn't. I can't feel the table. So you get an awareness at this basic level, the physical awareness that I'm here, right? No more sophisticated. And then you know, the terrible twos kick in because until the emotional awareness develops, you don't even know that your emotions are separate. So you separated as a physical entity, you know you're separate from your mother. She's a different, because when you bite your mum's finger, the finger doesn't hurt, but your gums do. So that's your mum's finger, that is. So you're physically separate from your mum. But actually, when I'm upset, you know, my mum needs to be upset because there's only one emotion here. There's our emotion. So that's why you see the terrible two, you know, children in the supermarket screaming their eyes out because they can't get the chocolates. Because they, they're baffled. Why don't you want the chocolates? We're hungry. We want the chocolate. There's only one emotion here, desire for the chocolate, and we want it. So why aren't, you know, and then it's screaming and bawling. So, and then about two to three years old, they realize that your emotion isn't their emotion. Uh, so prior to that, you get the terrible twos, right? Very, very egocentric. And then again, it's a beautiful moment if you see it. Like if you've ever seen this thousand-yard stare from a two-year-old, tears of rage going down their cheeks, like, we want the chocolate. Why aren't we getting the chocolate? And they're looking at you baffled. Why aren't you crying? Mm. You want the chocolate? Why aren't you crying? And that's the emergence of the separate emotion. I'm emotionally separate from you. And many psychologists make a big deal about this, call it psychic death and all sorts of things. But... It's emotional separation. I am emotionally separate, not just physically separate, emotional separate. And yeah. that happens around about two years old. And then I won't go too much through all this because it's, it's, you know, it's all in the book, the coherence book. But conceptual awareness is when I start to get proper consciousness. It's because I start to label my world. And language is critical to the acceleration of consciousness. I start to label, you know, mum, dad, bat, ball, dog, cat. But they're just concepts. Concepts, that's right. So that... You know, language is just concepts. It's a sound to represent something. So the sound, you know, means there's stuff I'm wearing on my face. You know, it's this stuff here. It's a noise to represent something. So just concept. Yeah. So that booms in between the ages of three and six. We get six new words every single day and really acceleration of human consciousness. And then we get to concrete awareness, which is where most human beings stop in their evolution. So concrete awareness is the rules that govern the concepts. That's what we learn there. And it's, it goes from six to nine years old is where it really blossoms. And so most people's evolution up this stops at about nine years old. So many human beings are uh, developmentally disabled. They've stopped evolving past level four. So what do we need to do to get from four to five? 
wake up. That, that's what we talk about, wake up. You know, wake up, you know, become woke, smell the coffee, what's really going on in life. Now, the first attempt to wake up happens in, in early teenage years, to become transpersonal, to start to realize there's something beyond yourself, which is why Greta Thunberg becomes in, interested in ecology and goes on a big mission. But all children go through that or attempt to get beyond themselves, beyond the rules of themselves and the rules of society and see a bigger picture. And it causes teenage conflict, right? So the whole of teenage conflict is, you know, why do I have to be home at 10? You know, why can't I be home at 11? And it's really a developmental stage. And of course, parents fight that and battle it and try and suppress it. But it's development. They shouldn't suppress it. They should work with it, right? Because it's really their child evolving, you know, and, and parents desperate attempt pushing to... Pushing the boundaries, isn't it? Yeah, pushing the boundaries, yeah. To try and maintain control, we suppress it. And so the battle, you know, rages in most households and, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. And, you know, regardless of whether the parent or the, the, the child wins here, usually when that child leaves home, you know, and obviously that's much later now, I can tell from personal experience, Kids don't leave home. But I'm not you, feeling bad about it, Alan. No, no, no. no. So when the child leaves home, uh, a much bigger parent called society pushes them back into the concrete. You've got to follow the rules. So society as a parent pushes you back into the concrete and you've got to start following the rules. You've got to get a job. You've got to get a house. You've got to get a relationship. You've got to get a car. You've got to climb the greasy pole. You've got to make money. All of those things. Get a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. And then they, most people go back to sleep. Just following a set of rules, their life becomes a stereotype. And then most people never wake up again, unless you have a disaster in midlife. So this is the evolution of awareness. So what am I mindful of? Am I just mindful of rules, right? Am I mindful of concepts? Uh, is my mind full of just the anger and rage and frustration? And as you know, we talked before, the commonest emotion in business by a factor of four is frustration. Frustration is four times more common in business than any other emotion, right? Is my mind full of that? Or is my mind full of my own physical awareness of taking photos of my backside all the time and posting on Facebook? You know, what's my mind full of? You know, and it's slightly determined by how evolved I am. When you're up this end, your mind's full of different things, right? So our mindfulness in terms of content, it depends on your level of evolution. And in terms of the process of mindfulness, is different from the content of mindfulness, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just going back to meditation again, you know, partly there's been quite a bit written about, about the effects of that. And one, one writer talking about the fact that meditation is, is all about losing one's identity, is about realising there is only one of, one of us. Well, that's a certain type of meditation. See, that's what happens is that, you know, meditation is, it's a bit like in the, in the 70s, you and I are probably old enough to remember that the Love Is series of cartoons were big in the 70s, right? And it was loving. There was a thousand statements, you know, in that sentence, Love Is, da, da, da. And they sold all these cards and it was, it was a big business at one point. Same with meditation. Meditation is. Well, it's many things to many people. That's why it's become a meaningless word. So losing yourself is a certain type of meditation, Right. You know, you can meditate where you meditate on the phenomena of self. So it might be when people say that, what they really mean when they say, I want to lose myself in meditation is to say, well, look, actually, I can meditate on a certain emotional state, compassion meditation. I'm meditating on this single emotional state. But if I meditate on the nature of identity and I realize that who I think I am is based on a load of rules that were sort of baked into my mind by my parents usually 
So my identity is wrapped up in who my parents told me I was. You know, so if you say to a child, you're clumsy, you're clumsy, you're clumsy, you're clumsy, eventually the child believes they're clumsy, whether it's true or not. Because they've just been mm-hmm. told it so many times, you're useless, you're useless, you're useless. You're brilliant, you're brilliant, you're brilliant. You know, like whatever you've been told, you know, because ch- children don't have critical facility, you start to believe it's true. Until you start to look beyond the rules, right, and start to realize, well, there's a load of nonsense, this isn't true. Why, is, why do I even believe that to be true? You get into transpersonal awareness and you start to do a lot of very deep work get into integrated awareness, then you get into pure being awareness. And so as you go further up here, you know, here, when you get to level seven, you start to experience a level of selflessness. So the lower down, you're very trapped by your ego. And as you go further and further up, you start, your ego starts to disappear in the, in the rear view mirror, right? And your sense of the importance of this idea of self starts to recede right it seems to be a fanciful idea and and frankly a load of nonsense or as one as america's leading zen master said to me once when i was doing some work with him some years ago when you've meditated on the cushion for 40 years like i have alan you come to a realization that the self is just a collection of ideas held together by spit i it's nothing there's nothing there it's just a it's just a notion and so then when you get to quite scary for many people isn't it that that thought that there might be nothing there Well, it's a construction. So uh, you can say it's scary, but another way of looking at that is incredibly liberating, right? So I'm liberated. I don't have to be anything or be anybody or, you know, and and I'm not constrained by this notions of who I thought I was. And frankly, it's really interesting, particularly in the leadership literature. I mean, you hear a lot about the phenomenon of something called authenticity in leadership, right? Is that authentic leadership. I mean, it's funny to me because it feels like it's Tourette's, you know, authentic leadership, authentic <laughs> leadership, it's like a Tourette's sort of jerk. But if you don't know who you are, what are you being authentic to? Well, you know, your sense of self is very unevolved. And so authentic leadership, you're being authentic to what exactly? And on the journey of evolution of self, right, what's interesting is as you further go further and further up that ladder, the whole notion of self starts to crumble away and become less and less important. And so what you'll see in highly evolved human beings, I mean, like Mandela, is their level of selflessness is amazing. There's a lovely story when he had his 90th birthday and, and, and Mandela experienced all the you know, celebrities flying in for a photo with Mandela and Bono turns up and Tony Blair turns up and all these leaders come in. And they're all turning up for a photo with the great man. You know, and he sits there and is very politely tolerating this all day. I and mean, it's probably not what he wanted to do on this day, but all these people turned up. And at the end of the day, when they'd all gone and all the dust had settled, he turned to the photographer and says, would you like a photo? <laughs> I, the photographer was just as important to him as all these dignitaries. You know, so unconcerned with his own importance. We're all just human beings, right? That's a level of selflessness that you don't see in most global leaders. And you certainly need to see it. It's not a quality talked about much, but it's what you eventually get to. This notion that the self is a slightly indulgent idea, you know, and when you're having to protect, how dare you say that to me? I'm having to protect this fragile sense of myself. So I get easily offended and I take things personally because I'm having to protect something. Mm -hmm. But when you, you know, are liberated from all of that, it's much easier to listen to feedback. (laughs) People could take a pot at you. You're not protecting anything right? Because you don't have a strong sense of self. 
right? Good question here from Luke, uh, Alan. What levels do you believe you've entered, Alan, and how often do you deliberately enter the ones of five and above? Are the reasons and purposes of being in these different levels detailed somewhere, please? They're detailed in the coherence book, right? Um, so get that. It gives you a lot more than I can explain in half an hour. But one of the things we do when we coach people is you can do something called a pointing out instruction. So it's an eyes open technique. You're not meditating, you know, you know, you're not in a visualization, just having a conversation. It takes about two and a half hours is I can talk you into level 10, right? I can talk you and level 10 is, you know, level eight, by the way, historically level eight was called Nirvana. So that's, that's up until about 300 years ago, there were only eight levels because human beings hadn't realized. So it was, it's called classical Nirvana level eight. So it's that level of unity in duality, right? Unity in duality. So it's a unity experience. So it's this sort of blissful state of unity of oneness, if, you know, in spiritual terms. So I'm at one. Oh my God, this is Nirvana. This is wonderful. And then that was the sort of the ultimate state of reality in, in human conscious experience up to about 300 years ago. But then some clever people pointed out that, that you were experiencing the unity. So there was the experience, unity, and there was somebody experiencing the unity. So that's a duality. There's an observer and an observed. Oh my goodness, yes, you're right. You know, so it's not true unity. So that's when level nine emerged which is uh, essentially pure awareness where the observer disappears now level nine some people have, have actually physically experienced this but it's very brief for most people so it might be that moment where you're stood looking at the grand canyon and just for a moment you evaporate you become the canyon or if you've been in the forest in nature for a moment that your whole sense of self evaporates you are the forest so there is no observer and there is no observe. There's just the experience. That's level nine conscious experience. So, and level 10 is the level even beyond that. So, and, and so level 10 is kind of what the Buddha experienced under the Bodhi tree, a state of enlightenment, essentially. Now in two and a half hours, I can talk anybody into that as a first-hand experience. And as you know, because you and I have done it, Katie, it's an amazing experience, right? It, and it completely resets your entire mind and your you know, your sense of self. Because once you've experienced at that level, there's no going back. You've seen the world very, very differently and you can't now unsee it in that way. But you can't, you know, hold that most of the time when you're wandering through Tesco's. You know, non-dual experience when you're, you know, getting the can of beans off the shelf. So most people are... You don't like to happen, is it? If you can. I mean, I've tried the experiment. You can actually shop in a non-dual state. So that's quite an interesting thing to do. So in answer to the question from Luke, right, is that, you know, you have to work. So each level, you've got to work to achieve these new levels. So it's this notion that states of consciousness can be experienced, but levels have to be earned. So take an example. I'm going to take two people who I'm going to talk into uh, a first-hand experience of enlightenment. And one of them is basically operating most of the time in concrete awareness, not really awake. And so because they've never experienced anything beyond level four, when you talk them into level 10, they've got no way of comprehending it. So you give them the experience and then they come out of it and they go, whoa, that was weird. And they have to reject it because they can't integrate the experience. So because they've never had anything like that and they've got no equipment for understanding it. 
But if you put the work in, each new level becomes incredibly profound. Put the work in. So somebody who's done a lot of study and a lot of reflection and meditation, if you like, and the right type of meditation, properly guided, it becomes a more and more profound experience. So talk them then into level 10, it becomes a profound phenomenon. Talk the average guy off the street into level 10, and it just goes, whoa, that was weird. Anyway, back to the beer. Can I ask a question, Alan, about how can over-busy people find space to embody this way of being day-to-day? That's a great question. And and the simple answer is is practice. So, you know, ever-present awareness. So what tends to happen is we, because when we're addicted to the rational, objective, observable world and what we would call the world of it, the stuff out there, oh my God, it's very distracting. Have you seen this car? Have you seen that pair of shoes, that handbag, the materialistic world, right? We get, oh, it's dazzling. And, uh, you know, and we get drawn into all of that. And we forget there's a world in here, inside of ourselves. Mm. And we get disconnected. We get what we call it addicted. So, you know, you've got to recognize, and that's one of the reasons why when we do the work with, with client organizations, the first thing we teach everybody is your world is in three dimensions, I, we, and it. It's not just it. So wake up to the realization that you're a three-dimensional human being, not a one-dimensional human being. You're not a human doing, just doing a series of tasks and targets. There's a human being turning up to do the doing. So be aware of that. So start to look inward and start to wonder who's this human being that's turning up to do the doing and how can I evolve that? Because it's a game changer. So if you just look at the commercial reality, you can totally transform your life by game changing your human being. In fact, that will make you way more successful than just trying to eke out a few extra percentage points on on the, the exterior world. You transform who you are, it will transform your ability to do anything. So that's where the real acceleration comes in the, in the evolution of I. So how you do that every day is you start studying, you start practicing some of these things I've talked about, and it completely game changes your life. So you start to wake up and grow up your human beingness. Another question. Do you think that awareness, which I experienced deepest when there is no thought in the mind, do our senses work in that moment? Yes, they do. And again, start to explore this. In fact, your senses can still work in dreamless sleep. There's a, there's a yoga technique called yoga nidra, where in that blackness, when you go into dreamless sleep, you can penetrate the black with awareness. So it's really interesting, even though you're in brain waves, you're in dreamless sleep, you're still aware. So you can cultivate an awareness even in dreamless sleep. And even, you know, when there isn't any particular content in your consciousness, there is nothing to be observed, right? There's still an awareness. So that pure awareness, right? That's level nine on that ladder of 10, pure awareness, right? And so you don't need content to have awareness. It's a different phenomena. So there's the process of awareness and there's the content of your awareness. They're different things. And they... So uh, are you... Okay. Uh, going back, are you saying that becoming more sophisticated, becoming more developed, if you like, in the eye will help in the it? It's an absolute game changer because the more mature, the more sophisticated we are as human beings the better we are able to lead. The less sophisticated, the more likely we are to cause suffering to others. 
and cause suffering to ourselves and to our nearest and dearest and make bad choices and bad decisions that cause problems. And that's the point about evolution is we've got to wake up and grow up as individuals. We've got to wake up and grow up as collectives, as teams, uh, and we've got to wake up and grow up organizations and we've got to wake up and grow up the planet because the clock's ticking. The world is beset by lots of very difficult problems like COVID, like climate change, like many of these things we've talked about before. Uh, and our only chance out is vertical development. We've got to get out of the swamp. And the only way we're going to get out of the swamp is by growing up. Okay. Thank you for that, Alan. Uh, and thank you for your questions as well. We've had a number of people on. Thank you for joining us today. We have another webinar in two weeks' time, which is the 23rd of July. So it's uh, the Fit for the Future series. But that one is called, Should I Stay or Should I Grow? Is it possible to grow your business whilst working from home? I suspect the answer to that may be yes, but as ever, it might take um, a little bit more explanation than uh, simply one, one word. So just to let you know, I know there's a couple of people asking, can they have this as a webinar or a podcast? Yes, it will be out in the next couple of days on our website, complete-coherence.com. Uh, so please do go and have a look at it there and also share it. And you can get people to sign up for the series of webinars as well. So really hope that you can join us. Hope that any of your friends or colleagues can join us. Please spread the word. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Katie. If we've piqued your curiosity or you've enjoyed anything we've talked about in this podcast, please subscribe, email us, or just visit our website at complete-coherence.com.